I'd like to ask you to think about something that might not be very comfortable, um, but I think you will find it useful in the long run. I'd like to ask you to consider what are you in bondage to at this point in your life? What are you in bondage to at this point in your life? And I would like to think that many of you would probably answer Jesus, that you are bond servants of Christ, and, and I believe that to be true, but, but just setting Jesus aside for a moment, think about what is controlling you? What is it that's driving you? What is dominating you? What gets the bulk of your thoughts, attention, time, and money? What would you say today is your biggest struggle, your most fearful battle, your most shameful thoughts or actions? What is the thing or things you would most like to be free from today? As you consider it, let me give you some options. Maybe they're things related to secret sin, things that no one else knows but God. Maybe it's something to do with a relationship in your life, maybe a spouse or a parent or child. Maybe it has to do with a colleague or a boss, a friend. Maybe it's an inappropriate relationship or ungodly relationship that you are in. Maybe it has to do with money. Maybe you have financial needs that you feel are pressing or you've made poor financial decisions. Maybe you're failing to give to God what he deserves. Maybe you find yourself struggling with greed or poverty, trusting in your wealth, your job or retirement. Then again, maybe it's health related. Do you have a health struggle or fear? Maybe a concern about what is happening in your body now, some present pain or illness, or maybe just a general lack of good health. Or maybe it's about what might happen as you get older. At 53, I find these are coming more frequently. Thinking about what may happen as the years go on, being afraid or concerned, or maybe you just have an overly acute awareness of your family health history. Maybe it's a fear of death itself, an awareness of your own mortality. Maybe it's things like lust or gluttony, other addictions. Maybe you're focused on or afraid of what others think about you. You feel a need for the approval of others. Maybe it's envy over what others have. Maybe you struggle with a critical heart, with gossip or slander or an argumentative spirit. Maybe it's pride. Do you find yourself always having to be right or always winning? Maybe it's anger. Are you quickly irritated? Do you find yourself easily frustrated, impatient, or even unkind? Maybe it's hatefulness or bitterness, an unforgiving spirit, something you just can't let go with others. Maybe it's a general selfishness. Do you find yourself far too often at the center of your own world? Maybe it's something spiritual. Are you struggling with spiritual apathy? You feel distant from God or... Maybe you don't really even desire intimacy with him, or at least you can't seem to make yourself work at it. You find it hard to be motivated to read his word, and it seems so lifeless, even if you do. Maybe it has to do with your prayer time. Are your prayers dry? Do you feel like they're empty? Maybe they're shallow? Maybe you feel like your prayers are falling on deaf ears. How long have you been looking at what other people seem to have with Jesus and wanting that but feeling like there's no hope of change? 
The truth is it could be one of a million other things. There's so many things that control us, but this morning as you think about it, focus on that. What is it controlling you? What are you in bondage to? And are you tired? Are you weary of it? More importantly, would you like to be set free? Let me encourage you to hang on to those feelings for a little while as we begin to look at the coming of the Messiah, the anointed one. We're going to be in John chapter 12, and if you're using one of the Bibles around you, uh, you should be able to find that on page 898, 898. You see, the Jewish people were feeling a sense of bondage as well. And at this time in history, of course, in bondage politically to Rome, but also in many of the same ways that maybe you've identified this morning. After all, people are not so different today. So keep that in mind as we talk about the coming of Messiah, God's anointed one. But before we get into it, since we're kind of making a pretty big leap in time in the gospel narrative from last week to where we are today to talk about Palm Sunday, let me just give you some context for what's going on at this point. First, Jesus at this point has raised Lazarus from the dead, and the news of that is spreading. People witnessed it or have heard about it from others who witnessed it, and they're coming to believe more and more that Jesus was probably this Messiah, the one they were waiting for. As a result, the Pharisees and religious leaders that heard about what was happening, they're afraid. As a matter of fact, John eleven forty eight, they say, if we let Jesus go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So because of their fear, the leaders decide to put Jesus to death. As a result, Jesus has withdrawn or had withdrawn from the crowds, but as Passover is approaching, everyone is waiting. They're watching, they're looking to see, will Jesus come up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover? Jesus, on his way up from Jericho, encounters two blind men crying out for the son of David to heal them, and he heals them, and they in turn join his entourage. Six days before the Passover, Jesus and his disciples came to Bethany. And, and let me just pause there for a minute, because uh, there are times that people struggle with the chronology of the Passion Week, looking at the dates and times of things and what's said. And I, I've actually even had uh, people that I've known that have struggled with the reliability of the Bible because they can't get the timeline to line up in their minds. But let me give you a couple of pieces of information that hopefully will help resolve that for you. Uh, the first is, remember in the Jewish mind that a day really runs from sundown to sundown. So basically from 6 p.m. to 6 p.m. And, and that's important. It resolves a lot of things. Also, as we look at the, the issue of Passover this morning in the book of John, we can see that John clearly sees Passover as beginning Thursday evening. That's our Thursday evening. But for them, it's really the onset or the beginning of Friday. So talking about six days before the Passover most likely refers to the preceding Saturday, which began on Friday evening. Okay, our Friday. You with me so far? So if Jesus arrived in Bethany that Friday evening, it would be at the beginning of the Sabbath. And most likely the dinner then that happens probably doesn't happen until Saturday evening. 
And after sundown, the Sabbath would have ended. And so most likely that's when this big meal happens, that Saturday evening, which then the next day would be Sunday and what we call Palm Sunday. So just keep that timeline in mind. So six days before the Passover, Jesus and his disciples came to Bethany and had dinner with Martha, Mary, Lazarus, and others. And again, in light of last week's sermon, if you were here, let me just tell you uh, this big banquet that Martha serves and uses her spiritual gifts in a way that uh, obviously glorify Christ. So there's been a big growth in, in her condition since last week, you know. So... It's also at this banquet that Mary anoints Jesus' feet and, and wipes his feet with her hair. The news of Jesus being in Bethany again with the risen Lazarus draws quite a crowd for this meal. Well, the religious leaders hear about the growing impact of Lazarus being raised from the dead, and in turn, they make plans to put Lazarus to death as well as Jesus. And then the next day... Palm Sunday, Jesus and his disciples continue their journey to Jerusalem. And that's where we'll pick up this morning. So if you would turn to John chapter 12, John chapter 12, starting in verse 12, John 12, 12. And it reads, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And again, think about the context for what's happening, okay? Now, all of these stories about Jesus have been circulating. The people have been talking about Jesus. He's, he's healing the sick. He's uh, feeding the hungry, even miraculously feeding the hungry. He's casting out demons. He's doing miracles. Even the wind and the waves obey him. He's uh, able to make the blind see. He's spending time with those who are lowly, the outcasts, even eating with tax collectors and sinners. And now, even in addition to that, he has raised this man who had been dead for four days back to life. So all of this is, is the, the discussion going on with the people in uh, Jerusalem and around Israel at this point. And what must have happened is some portion of the group that is in this banquet in Bethany with Jesus, they either leave earlier that morning or they rush on ahead, but they, they leave and, and get to Jerusalem quicker than Jesus and his disciples. And most likely, all along the way, as they're seeing people on this route up to Jerusalem, they're saying, hey, Jesus is coming. Jesus, and, and Lazarus is with him. And, and they're coming up to Jerusalem. And, and so they're telling all these people, and the excitement and the energy is building. And, and so all of the people that are in Jerusalem for the Passover are hearing this news. And just for context's sake, most likely, somewhere between one and two million people have come up to Jerusalem for this Passover. Okay, so just, again, think the population of the greater Columbus area. There's a lot of people, okay? It's a lot of people. And they're hearing this news about Jesus coming. And as a result, the people begin flooding out of Jerusalem down this road towards Jesus, shouting, Hosanna, Oceana, which literally means give salvation now. And it's taken from Psalm chapter 118, verses 25 and 26, that the Jews would have been very familiar with as a psalm of praise. 
But what's interesting is it's not very clear who starts the shouting, okay? It, depending on where you read it, it might be the disciples that are coming up with Jerus uh, to Jerusalem with Jesus. It might be those coming down from Jerusalem to Jesus. Every, every gospel writer has a slightly different version. Look at this. Matthew says, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Mark has, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Luke has, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And then our passage here in John, where it says, they took branches of palm trees and went out to him meet him crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And, and it's not really a matter that one gospel writer is right or the other's wrong. As you could imagine in a crowd, it, it's probably all being shouted. And each gospel writer has a particular focus. But what's striking, and, and maybe you noticed this, is John is the only one that specifically records people rushing out of Jerusalem and that they begin to take palm branches off the trees on their way to welcome the long-awaited Messiah, the one who would give salvation now. And that's interesting because at that point in time, the palm branches themselves were very symbolic for the people of Israel. One, all around Jerusalem and, and much of Israel at that time, but especially Jerusalem, were a large number of date palm trees. And the palm branches were used in worship, like during the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a part of the worship there. But also during the time of the, the Maccabees, there, there was a revolution and the palm branches were used as a way to welcoming in these, these uh, leaders that were leading the revolt. And so in the, in the national mind of the Jew, it's almost a nationalistic symbol uh, of overcoming, not just worship, but a matter of worshiping this one who will come and lead them. And so John mentioning that would communicate that these people coming out of Jerusalem clearly saw that Jesus was the Messiah and they were seeking to welcome in this, this special uh, anointed one. But as we talk about that, one of the things we have to keep in mind is the Jewish view of the Messiah at that time and the salvation that he would bring was very different than ours is today. You see, at that point even, there had been almost an innumerable amount of teaching, writing, speculation, discussion about who the Messiah is. What would he do? We have actually more than 550 ancient rabbinic texts, texts written by rabbis during that time. And they deal with over 450 passages from the Old Testament that they saw as being related to the future Messiah. And so there's lots of different views and opinions, but when you just look at the Gospels itself and look at people's interaction with Jesus, when you take a general feeling of the Jewish mindset as a whole, we see basically this understanding of the Messiah as a conquering king, as a conquering king. And, and there's four characteristics that we could say probably generally we're, we're agreed on here. Just looking at those briefly, the first is, that the Messiah was coming to conquer their enemies and free them from external bondage. 
Messiah is coming to conquer their enemies and free them from external bondage. You know, the mindset, again, for at least at this point in time, is that the Messiah would come and free them from the oppression of Rome. That was one of the primary things that he was going to do, to come in and deliver them from that oppression. The second is that the Messiah was coming to improve their lives by blessing them, by making them prosperous. When Messiah does come in, when he does overthrow the oppressors, he will also kind of bring in this new golden age, much like the time during Solomon's life when everything is going well, the fields are prosperous, the people are prosperous, there's lots of babies, everything is great. So this idea that he's gonna improve their life. The third thing we see is that they believed not only would he come in and deliver them from their oppressors, but he would lead them to victory. It's, it's not just overthrowing the Romans, but leading them to the place of prominence in the world. Whoever opposes Israel at that point, when the Messiah comes, he will lead them to victory over those people. Which in turn brings us to the fourth point, that he's coming to bring glory to Israel. And, and you can understand that, right? Those pieces just add up. If he comes in and overthrows the oppressors, starts this new golden age, everything's going great, leads them to victory over anyone that stands in their way, it, it's the sense of the returning glory of the nation of Israel. So with that in mind, consider again that the crowd rushing out of Jerusalem, getting larger and larger, shouting and celebrating this conquering king that has come to save them, to set them free, free from Rome, free from financial struggles, free from shame, free to take their rightful place of prominence on the world stage. And so again, picture this crowd, and then in the middle of that, Jesus does the most amazing thing. It's really one of those moments that should have caused the people to stop and reevaluate their thinking. In this one particular act, Jesus very clearly states, you are right, I am the Messiah, but not the conquering king you're expecting. Look with me at John 12, starting in verse 14. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. And the reason why the crowd went to meet him was they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So again, picture it, the swelling crowd, everyone shouting out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is you who comes in the name of the Lord. And this idea that the world has gone after him, it's a large group. And yet in light of that growing force of excitement, the sense of wanting to follow after this new conquering king, Jesus does the most amazing thing. He sends his disciples to find a donkey. And if we looked at the other gospels, we'd see just them going to get the donkey was miraculous. But when he climbs on the donkey, it's the only time we read of any time in scripture him riding anything, okay? He's usually walking, but he climbs on the donkey, a monumental moment. And, and as only Jesus can do, he can say, you're so right and yet you're so wrong. You see, both Matthew and John tell us this is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. 
Zechariah 9, verses 9 through 11. Follow along as I read it. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. You see, when Jesus climbs on this donkey, the Jewish people who knew this prophecy recognized it was a sign that he was Messiah, but they didn't understand these key characteristics. Notice, right, it says the Messiah will be characterized by righteousness. He will have a right and just reign. It says more than just bringing salvation, he has salvation in himself. He's empowered by salvation. He's able to bestow salvation on others. Also that he comes in not like other leaders, not like other kings. He comes in humbly. He's not riding a war horse. He's riding a donkey, as Jesus would describe himself, coming in gentle and lowly. Even just the results that we see in this, we can see there's three things that it's clear about. He will bring an end to wars that he'll speak peace to the nations. He's not coming in as a military zealot. The, the goal is not to overthrow. It says his reign will extend to the ends of the earth and that because of the blood of God's covenant, he will set prisoners free. So again, as he climbs on this donkey, it should have caused the people to stop and realize he wasn't coming as the conquering king they wanted, but as the suffering servant that was promised. He was coming as the suffering servant, this, this other Messiah that we see in this passage. So think about this. Here's four characteristics that we see about Jesus, the suffering servant. The first is instead of coming to conquer their enemies and free them from external bondage, the suffering servant came to die and free them from bondage to sin. Notice in John chapter 12, starting in verse 20, it says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Well, Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone but if it dies, it bears much fruit. This has always been an interesting passage to me. I always wanted to know, did the Greeks get to see him? It doesn't tell us that, but what is evident is that it's something monumental. Because before this point, whenever Jesus talks about the hour, he says, his hour has not yet come. His hour has not yet come. The hour is not yet come. But as soon as the Greeks show up wanting to see him, his response is, the hour has come. And he begins to talk about his death very clearly. Look a little lower at verses 31. It says, now, uh, Jesus is speaking, says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. 
He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And then a little further down in verse 46, he says, I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. So instead of coming to conquer and deliver them from this external bondage, the suffering servant has come to die and free them from the bondage of sin. The second characteristic we see is that instead of the conquering king coming to improve their lives by blessing them and making them prosperous, the suffering servant calls them to give up their lives, to surrender their lives. Look at John 12, 25. Jesus says to them, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So again, Jesus' coming isn't about the bountiful blessings of materialism or their comfort or their success. He's not coming to improve their life, but he's coming to call them to surrender their lives, to give it up. The third thing we see is that instead of coming to lead them to military victory, he leads them to serve with him, to serve with him. Look at verse 26. Jesus says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So again, it's not about leading them to overcome everyone else. It's a call for them to be willing to serve others, to surrender and walk with Jesus in service. The fourth thing we see is that instead of coming to bring glory to Israel, ultimately the suffering servant came with the view of glorifying God. He came to glorify God. Look at verses 27 and 28. Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And and these words are just so easy for us to read, but you need to understand when Jesus says, now is my soul troubled, those those words carry a weight of anguish. It's the same weight even that we see when we look at the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, a burden upon him. He recognizes what's coming. He feels the weight of sacrifice. And, and it's easy for us to just say, Father, save me from this hour. And he, like Jesus was like, whoa, no big deal. I'll just do the right thing. But it's not that way. The, the verses, the weight of what they're saying is he struggled with knowing what was coming. But he intentionally redirects his heart to the truth that he had come to bring glory to the Father. And so in doing that, he can surrender. So Jesus came not to bring glory to Israel, but ultimately he came to glorify God. So we see these two messiahs, okay? The people's messiah, this this conquering king, the one they wanted. And we see the promised messiah, the suffering servant. My question to you today is this. Which messiah do you choose? Which messiah do you choose? You see, every day, time and time again, we have an opportunity to decide which messiah we're waiting on. Which messiah are we crying out to? You know, we started this morning by considering areas in our lives where we're in bondage. I believe most of the times we stay and continue in bondage because we're crying out and waiting for a conquering king to save us. Think about it. We, we want Jesus to just come in to destroy those enemies, our oppressors. We want him to just free us from the struggles. We want him to make our lives better, easier, more comfortable, 
to give us whatever blessings or prosperity we need so that life is more enjoyable. We want him to give us victory over all the things that keep us in bondage. We want him to do these things so we can have independence. We want him to serve our glory, our beauty, our success, our strength, our sufficiency. And you might be saying to yourself, oh, I don't know. I'm not sure that I'm like that. But let me tell you, this is how I see it most clearly in myself. Maybe it will be helpful to you. Have you ever had one of those days when something's going bad or you're struggling, you're suffering, you're fighting with your sin, and you have this thought, oh, I just wish Jesus would come back today. I mean, right? But, but think about it. Isn't that really you just doing what the Jews were doing, waiting for this conquering Messiah? It's not like, oh, I wish Jesus would come back because I want to see him. You're like, I want Jesus to come back to make my life easier. I'm tired of the struggle. I'm tired of being weary. I'm tired of what's going on. I just want to get on with heaven, right? But the truth is true freedom seldom comes that way. True freedom only comes by us abiding with the suffering servant. You see, Jesus gives us freedom from sin through his death and daily dependence on our union with him. He gives us freedom by calling us to give up our lives, for us to practice dying daily so that others can live. He gives us freedom through abiding with him, walking moment by moment with him, by following him and loving others passionately and serving others selflessly. He gives us freedom by teaching us to lay down our glory, our desires, our comfort, and to make God's glory the driving force in our lives, just like it is in his. To live a life of utter dependence that magnifies God's glory, that magnifies Jesus' sufficiency. To live a life that proclaims Jesus is worth it. So each moment, every time you encounter a struggle, a challenge, a suffering, temptation, you have to choose which Messiah are you waiting on. Are you waiting on the conquering king? Or are you crying out to the suffering servant? And the right choice makes all the difference. But if we're honest, it's very hard to choose wisely, to choose the suffering servant. And if we look at the rest of these verses in this passage, I think we can see that there are five barriers that John highlights to choosing the suffering servant. The first one that we see is a lack of understanding God's word, a lack of understanding God's word. Look at John 12, verse 34. It says, so the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? You see, the Jews knew God's word. They talked about God's word. They heard God's word. They discussed the Messiah, but they didn't understand God's word. They couldn't imagine a suffering servant. They couldn't imagine a Messiah that had to die. And if we are going to choose wisely in each moment, if we're going to pursue walking with the suffering servant, we have to be faithful to continue pursuing understanding the Word of God and our understanding of Jesus through it. Do you remember the story about the two men on the road to Emmaus after Jesus' death and resurrection? You remember two of them are walking along, and, and Jesus comes alongside them and starts walking with them, but they don't recognize that it's Jesus. And they're talking about everything that happened. And eventually they begin to discuss their confusion with Jesus 
over this Messiah that had to die and, and now was raised. And you remember Jesus said to them in Luke 24, starting in verse 25, he says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You see, we must pursue understanding God's word. Don't let the study of God's word become just a task that you're seeking to check off. Don't let it be some duty or ritual that you feel like you have to do, otherwise you're not a good person, you're not a good Christian. You need to understand it's like a treasure map. It's a treasure map that draws a line to how you can be with Christ, how you can walk intimately with him. So that's the first barrier, our lack of understanding to God's word. The second barrier that we see is failing to respond in faith when given the chance. Failing to respond in faith when given the chance. Look at John 12, starting in verse 35. It says, so Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you or, or master you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become, become sons of light. Jesus was calling these people to respond to the truth that they had heard, the things that they had seen with their own eyes, the experiences that were going on around them, and to respond in faith to those things. And honestly, in our lives, when we come face to face with the truth, we need to do all that we can to respond in faith as quickly as we can. Now, if you are here this morning, or maybe even watching our live stream, if you don't have a vibrant, intimate relationship with Jesus, I have good news for you. You see, Jesus, the Son of God, united himself to our humanity and lived a life of perfect obedience in order to glorify God the Father. He lived a life that nobody else has ever been able to live. And then he voluntarily died in our place, taking our disobedience, our rebellion on himself, taking God's full wrath that we deserved. Jesus paid a debt that we could never pay ourselves. And then he rose from the dead, showing that his sacrifice, that his life was sufficient to enable us to be restored to a right relationship with God. And listen, he invites you to be joined to him today by faith. And through that union with Christ, your experience will change. Your life will be transformed. You'll experience a new life and growing transformation as sons or daughters of light. And today, right now, right now is the opportunity for you to respond in faith. I beg you, don't leave today. Don't live another moment of your lives without this intimate, life-giving relationship with Jesus, the lover of your soul. You don't know if or when you'll have the opportunity to respond in faith again. And if you'd like to know more, please don't leave today without talking to somebody. You can talk to me, talk to somebody around you. Somebody will be glad to share with you how you can start this kind of relationship with Jesus. But 
if you fail to respond in faith, the consequences are unimaginable. The third barrier, the third barrier to choosing to walk with the suffering servant is if we are blinded to who Jesus is and what he has done. Continuing in John 12, the second half really of verse 36, it says, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. The truth is, nobody can respond in faith to Jesus apart from the work of God in their lives. Because we're all born dead in sin and our selfishness, our pride, our rebellion. We're incapable of faith. We're incapable of pleasing God. Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3 say it this way. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4 say it like this, and even if our gospel, the good news, is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You see, it's quite possible that you haven't chosen to respond in faith to Jesus the suffering servant, because you are still dead in your sins. You're blinded with a hard heart toward the things of God. But there's two important things you need to know about your condition. The first is you are still responsible for your selfishness, your pride, your rebellion against God. Your inability to respond does not in any way remove your responsibility. The second is, if you are blinded and unable to respond in true, authentic faith, you can still pray and ask God to graciously make you alive, to give you a new heart, to give you faith to believe, and God is able to answer that prayer. So third barrier, blinded to who Jesus is and what he has done. The fourth barrier to us choosing wisely is desiring your own glory. Desiring your own glory. Look at John 12, verse 42. It says, Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. In John 5, verses 42 through 44, Jesus says it this way. He says, But I know you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. 
If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. For how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? You see, if you're pursuing your own glory, your own comfort, your own success, the truth is you will never be able to choose to follow the suffering servant. James 4, verses 4 through 10 puts it this way. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose, the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. You see, there's no way to seek our own glory and follow Jesus. The two are diametrically opposed. Jesus is driven by a desire to bring glory to the Father. The fifth and final barrier, an unwillingness to obey God's word. An unwillingness to obey God's word. John 12, 47 says, If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on that day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who has sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. We must not only pursue understanding God's word, but we must commit ourselves to obeying it. We must surrender the authority in our life to the word of God and be willing to obey what we see when we find it there. It will be confrontational in your life, in your heart, in your attitudes, but we must already come to it with a willingness to obey. So today, if daily and moment by moment, we're going to choose the true Messiah, if we're going to choose to follow after the suffering servant, we must faithfully seek to understand his word. We must respond to it in faith. We must ask the Holy Spirit to reveal the areas in our lives where we're blind or hardened to the person and the work of Jesus. We must humbly be willing to accept correction, desiring most of all that Jesus will be glorified in our lives as we seek to obey his word. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you this morning, and Father, we thank you that you did not send us the Messiah we want, but you sent us the Messiah we need. Father, we thank you that we have a Savior who came and suffered in our place, who is willing to take the wrath that we deserve, who is willing to make us one with him that we might know new life in you. Father, I pray this morning that you would give us a desire to walk intimately with you. Help us not be driven by our own comfort, by our own selfishness, by our own pride. 
Father, let us delight in you. Let us delight in Jesus. May our desire be for his glory above everything else. May we commit ourselves this day and and all the days ahead to pursue crying out for and waiting on the suffering servant that we might walk with you, surrendering our lives so that in it all you receive the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you guys for coming. And again, if you uh, haven't joined us for Pizza with the Pastor, we would love for you to do that as well. Have a great day.